Bill Carwin's name precedes himself as he's among the top 0.01% of Stack Overflow users. And the online community perhaps knows him best for his generosity in sharing information about relational databases and SQL. Today, he works for Square, the enormously successful payments business from his hometown in Santa Cruz, California. Bill joined us to share some of his personal background in software engineering and advice for those who are just beginning their career journey. Enjoy. Mr. Basement, you got that certain something. Mr. Basement, you set the music bumping to you. It's easy when you go one, two, three. Yeah. Hi, all. Uh, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, we are joined by Bill Carwin. Uh, Bill uh, is a tremendous contributor to uh, various highly visible public websites like Stack Overflow, Quora. Uh, Bill, you've uh, done a lot in your career with respect to SQL and databases, which is a, a recurring topic <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, but Bill, I, maybe it's best in your words. Uh, do you mind introducing for our audience a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks for asking me here, Max. I'm glad to join Absolutely. you. Um, yeah, I'm a software engineer by training, uh, and I've been doing this for quite a long time. I, with the, the theme of accidental engineer, I sort of fell into doing database work accidentally uh, a while back when I was working as a technical support engineer for a database product uh, called Interbase. And as I learned more about databases in that role, I, I started getting exposure to lots of people using databases in different ways for their applications. And I started realizing it's really the foundation of virtually every application that we develop. Uh, it always has this sort of data layer, and it, it's mm -hmm. a very common kind of element. Yeah, I agreed. It was of the computer science classes I took in my undergraduate degree. I majored in math, but I took a number of computer science courses. By far and away, database systems, I tell people, is the most applicable course that I got in my undergraduate degree. Uh, just learning SQL, <laughs> learning some basic database interactivity tools. Uh, so totally agreed with you on that front. You're coming up on a 30-year career in software engineering. Is that right? Yeah, oh. if you count all the way back to doing internship work while I was in college. Uh, so and, and in college, you majored in computer science. Is that right? Yes, I went to University of California, Santa Cruz, and I got my degree in computer science. I, I really uh, had that as my plan from way back. I, I was getting interested in working with computers back in high school and doing a little bit of programming back then on the Apple II uh, computers. <laughs> back when computers were one megahertz, literally. <laughs> uh, what, what was it like trying to write software for computers back then versus today? I mean, maybe it might seem obvious to you or I, but for our audience, what was it like back oh, then? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, a lot of things are different about that environment. Um, there's no hard drive, so you're you're uh, working on your code in memory only. And uh, when you say, "Huh, it's been an hour. Maybe I should save this," put in a floppy disk, save it to the floppy disk. Now it's safe. And uh, but in the meantime, you're you're in a text editor uh, uh, writing this uh, on the fly, and and if you lose power or something like that, it's gone. 
so, and, and of course, code has to be very small because the computer capacity is very small compared to what it is today. Uh, so you have to start thinking about how to do things very, very efficiently and writing more logic and less lines of code uh, uh, and, and trying to utilize the resources very carefully. I wrote a uh, program back then to do a spinning globe of the, of the world in 16 kilobytes of RAM. Uh, well, like a pretty detailed, and I had to do this complicated thing, like I'm painting the globe into high memory. And then when it comes to showing the, the globe moving, you, you tell the computer, okay, your display is now using this memory. So just shift the entire display up to this area of memory. So a lot of really creative things go into that when you have such constrained resources. And people say today, everything is so huge, don't worry about it. We have terabyte-sized hard drives. We have all these gigabytes of RAM. But we're, we're, everything old is new again. We're now designing software for things like mobile apps and Internet of Things and embedded devices and things like that. So there are people designing software to run on these tiny, tiny platforms um, uh, still today. And I recognize all the skills that they're they're developing uh, to do that sort of thing from when I used to use uh, micro micro computers. Back when the the Apple II came out, was it a pretty uh, expensive computer to buy in contrast to uh, the purchases that people make today for computers? Well, <clears throat> in some ways, yeah. I mean, the the, the dollar figure was pretty comparable, uh, you know, around about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars has been about the price of a personal computer since the very early days. That figure was more valuable back then because of inflation, uh, so it may have seemed more expensive. But um, oh, certainly. But it's it's interesting to watch over the years that the the price of a you know kind of mid range personal computer in absolute dollar numbers pretty much has stayed about the same for a long long time. Was was that an issue for uh, computer science programs like the one you attended at UC Santa Cruz? Where was it hard to find a computer lab with enough computers to to go around for everybody in your class? In high school, we had Apple IIs, and um, and everybody had one. There was probably about twenty four uh, computers, and that was a pretty big deal at the time. Uh, that was like a, a county wide uh, program that bought those computers. In uh, college, we didn't use comp uh, personal computers so much as we used the Unix machine uh, in a uh, interactive um, or shared environment where everybody would have a um, a serial terminal that's essentially just a, a, a monitor and a keyboard that is connected by a hard wire all the way back to the the uh, shared Unix computer. So we would have dozens of people sharing on the same environment. And that was actually an interesting precursor to the whole social media uh, movement that is uh, common today. Mm -hmm. the, was, go, on. go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, uh, just because we were all interacting with each other, even though we we're on the same host, it feels like you're distributed because you're all in, in your own separate uh, rooms with your, your uh, uh, terminals or people were on dial-up. Uh, so we were able to uh, share information or post things to each other or yeah, run applications together. And you had these sort of BBS style applications where you could communicate. So that's really like the early pre-web version of Facebook. <laughs> In your first job, the the internship that you held when you were an undergrad student, uh, 
was it the same setup with a, a Unix uh, uh, terminals for everybody to interact with the same server? Yeah, my my uh, internship uh, midway through college was at a company called the Santa Cruz Operation or SCO, and they were uh, a company that made their own version of Unix for Intel uh, PC type of hardware, and it was pretty innovative at the time. Now everybody has Linux. And it's pretty uh, common, but at the time, uh, that was something which some people told them they couldn't do. Uh, people like IBM and other big companies said, "No, no, Unix has to run on a expensive big machine that we sell." But mm -hmm. uh, SEO tried to make their Unix on a on commodity cheap hardware, and I joined them as an intern in a, a application development group that we were uh, working on a spreadsheet uh, application, um, and. Back then, the the uh, computers were things like 286 and 386 based processors. So you could say, okay, the whole team of you, you've done your coding for today. We're going to compile the code that you wrote today. There, it's going. Everybody, go home. It'll be done in the morning. <laughs> and and it was. I mean, that's it would it would take several hours to complete the compile of of one run. Uh, and we you come back in in the morning and resume the next leg of your, uh, your development work. P people today often complain about build times, but I guess in the case of your internship and your jobs after college at that point in time, did that provide a bookend to your workday when somebody announced, we're going to compile now? Did all of you guys uh, pack up and go home at a reasonable hour? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you could still do other work. Uh, research, reading, testing, uh, planning out what you're going to do the next day, uh, communicating, having meetings, check, catch up on your email, all those things could be done uh, after you sort of set that going. So it wasn't necessarily that uh, you, you, know, you clock out at that time. Mm -hmm. So after graduating, you, you joined Borland? Uh, yeah. For people who, who aren't familiar, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, Borland was another... Uh, company local to me. So it was a, a, a good place to go. And they were a big name back in the 1990s for developer tools. Um, some people still actually use some of their tools like uh, Delphi, which is mm -hmm. um, a uh, IDE uh, uh, sophisticated editor for doing uh, visual programming and uh, putting together applications in that way. It sort of lent itself to um, non-web applications, you know, the desktop type of applications that you would use for a Windows machine, for example. But um, it was very popular in its time and very innovative in its time because you could uh, put together user interfaces very quickly, you know, drag and drop kind of things. You know, here's a, um, a form control, here's a grid of data, here's a, a button, and then link up those buttons with uh, little snippets of code that would have to do actions based on what happens when you click the button. So it was it was a really popular thing for people who wanted to do rapid uh, software development. And now nowadays we have other IDEs like IntelliJ and Eclipse and NetBeans and things like that, which sort of give the same kind of feel, um, and they have different types of uh, strengths. But at the time, uh, Delphi was a really good leader. I I think a, a large portion of our audience would benefit from hearing about the types of roles you held. I know you held a diversity of roles while you were with Borland. 
Um, do you mind sharing about that? Real yeah, quick? I had kind of an inspiring moment in, uh, when I was a young engineer. I worked for a small company where everybody had to wear uh, many hats to to do their work, and we were in a, just a, like a one room studio kind of thing. And I said, "Wow, someday I'd like to be able to have my own business and and do that. What do I need to learn in terms of diversity of skills to do that?" So I kind of deliberately sought out different things to do uh, throughout my career to try to get a perspective of what it takes to run a software business, not just as a coder, a software developer, but how do you do uh, IT? How do you do support? How do you do technical writing? And I put that into practice at uh, Borland. Uh, I was, at first, I was a technical support engineer helping customers on the phone and by email to use our database. And then uh, I moved from there into training. So I uh, helped to develop and deliver uh, presentations to do training for SQL and database work, database design and, and queries and all that sort of stuff. I started getting into doing presentations at conferences from that. And the first few times I tried to do a conference presentation, it was a complete disaster. I did, did, not, did not have... <laughs> How's that? Oh, I... <laughs> did not realize at the time the value of things like practice. I mean, the, the, uh, the biggest thing you can do for your success of making a good presentation is practice it beforehand. Like mm -hmm. literally stand in front of a mirror, go through the entire hour long presentation, speaking as though you're speaking to an audience. And uh, there was a real, there was a really good coach uh, who gave a talk at one of the conferences uh, to tell people how to be a better speaker. And his, he said he would go through and practice his presentation up to 20 times himself in a room. Mm -hmm. uh, so he knew every line. He knew every slide transition. He knew all the jokes he was going to tell. And his performances were flawless. And it, was, it really helps to engage the audience. The other thing he said about that was be enthusiastic. Don't come in there and say, here's my work. I'd optimized some code and there's the, no, he comes in there and says, I'm going to tell you about the greatest thing that I've done with this code. And you're going to be able to do it too. By the time you listen to me, now you're engaged. So there's a lot of these sort of complementary skills that you learn about being in the field of software engineering that are not just coding. It's about communicating. It's about getting other people engaged in, with what you're working on. It's about, um, uh, expressing leadership and enthusiasm for the th work that you're working on. You're, those are some tremendously valuable soft skills that you got in those first few roles with Borland. One of the th things you've mentioned to me before uh, coming on the podcast was about how in those roles, you on the job got the opportunity to deeply learn SQL, which is how I actually originally came across you was, uh, I think years ago, I first read your your answers on Stack Overflow about um, specific use cases for SQL. But do you mind sharing for our audience how how those roles in support and training and technical writing oh, yeah. uh, uh, led to learning SQL? So yeah, I've been answering questions on Stack Overflow for a long time, but I, I did other uh, er, um, areas online answering questions for people back in mailing lists and online forums and things like that. And the, the other way to practice SQL that we got into was uh, in the, the uh, technical support team for Interbase, we had our own internal 
ticketing system. Like, how do you keep track of which customers you've helped and what did you tell them and what's the status of this? Because we have dozens of customers and we have to keep track of that. Any kind of environment like that has a ticketing system. Ours had no application. We literally got into a query tool and we would write SQL queries to say, oh, well, we had a new uh, call from customer 123. Better write a SQL insert statement into the database and record what uh, the, you know the, a text description of what we talked about. So we got a lot of hands-on experience every day writing SQL queries on the fly. Uh, there was literally no user interface. It was just command line, write a, write a query, update the database directly. And, mm-hmm. But that I know one of your one of your open source contributions was to uh, write a Perl driver for SQL. Uh, to somewhat more automatically drive your query. Right, exactly. Because of that experience of writing all those SQL queries by hand, I said, there's got to be another way. And it was right about the time in the mid-90s that web applications were just starting to become a thing that people did. And Perl was uh, a, a really popular language for doing that at the time, CGI scripts and so on. But there needed to be a way of getting those CGI scripts to communicate with a database. So I wrote uh, a Perl extension uh, for the database that I was supporting, Interbase. And I wrote it in C and Perl, a combination of those two languages. Uh, and it, you could, you know, from a, a Perl script, you could connect to your database and submit that uh, query, get data back and forth, commit transactions, all the things that you normally do, um, which seems like, de- you know, really common de facto work today, but at the time, that that connection didn't exist for Perl. Uh, and uh, that code that I wrote in C is actually still part of the uh, the Perl driver for Interbase. So, you know, that since I released it to open source, it got picked up and added to uh, what the, the standard database interface for Perl is a DBD uh, driver. And uh, that is still in use today. That is awesome. <laughs> we had a guest on previously who... Uh, is similarly about 30 years into his software engineering career. And he made a, a comment that uh, I, made me scratch my head, which was that uh, none of his code that he wrote 20 years ago is use, in use today. And so I, I think it's awesome to hear a case where by contributing to open source and uh, broadening who might be using the code he wrote, uh, that statement about code you've written 20 years ago isn't in use is false in your case. <laughs> I think I find that just awesome. Yeah, but <laughs> sometimes it happens in the most unexpected ways. The things that you think are going to have longevity end up getting replaced. Maybe because you think the, the reason that you think they have longevity is because they're very useful, but because they're very useful, they end up getting used by more people and then eventually get replaced by something with more features because just because they're so popular. Whereas Got it. So other... inherently, it's not necessarily, uh, inherently, it might not be a sign that your code was bad. It might be that it's a hot area of development. Exactly. You know, the, the people are more interested and they say, well, what can it do this? Can it do that? And eventually uh, they say, well, maybe we should rewrite it all in Java. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I guess one of the things we didn't mention is your role today is that you are a database developer with Square. Is that correct? Yeah, I work uh, in a team of other database administrators, database developers at Square, uh, the the company that does um, payment processing for those little um, 
iPhone gadgets where you can swipe your credit card across there, but uh, they have other products too. Uh, and we, we take on a pretty challenging role of being sort of the, the centralized uh, database administration team, uh, working with MySQL and Redis and MongoDB uh, uh, all together to support many, many uh, other developers within the company. So that all the other developers are concentrating on their code and they just delegate the work of keeping their databases running to my team. And we have a, a much smaller team of, of people who do that. And the way to make that work, of course, is to automate everything. <laughs> so we, we spend a lot of our time, when we're developers, we spend our time developing tools to say, I want to upgrade the server and I want to upgrade 500 servers at a time. And uh, so that that's the kind of things that we uh, need to automate is because otherwise there'd be no way to, to do it with a single human being doing all that work. Mm -hmm. I think for many in our audience, they, they may not ever have the opportunity to self-host a database. Um, uh, previously on the podcast, we had uh, the ex-product manager for Heroku Postgres, which is a uh, hosted PostgreSQL offering. And he had some really interesting things to say about your your type of role as a, a database uh, developer or, or hosting manager in administrating databases is that it's kind of like treating these databases like finite state machines and that yeah, the, <laughs> managing state among 500 databases can be quite difficult. Yeah, the, the, uh, the buzzword that I hear a lot is they say treat your uh, – databases and servers like cattle, not pets. And the, and the, the metaphor is meant to say that if you treat them like pets, you're, you're spending a lot of time with them. You're, you're interacting with these databases on an individual level. You're tuning them very finely and, and taking care of them, making sure that they're happy. And, but if you treat the, the sort of uh, collection of database servers, which could be hundreds or thousands of servers, as a, a collective, now you have to treat them all equally. None of them can be um, unique. They all have to be configured the same way. And you end up uh, uh, doing operations that can be applied to dozens or hundreds at a time much more easily. So we've talked previously about the topic of uh, what skills should younger folks in their careers focus on acquiring. Uh, and it, it seems pretty relevant to uh, the topics of different databases you mentioned. You mentioned MySQL, Redis, uh, MongoDB. You have SQL and you have NoSQL databases. So I was wondering uh, for audience audience's sake, uh, well, maybe not which do you prefer, but uh, what's kind of the differences between working with those two types of databases, SQL and NoSQL? Yeah, I see that question a lot. When people are starting out, they're wondering, which one should I learn? It's always challenging to to uh, face all the options that we have available to us today and say, um, I, I can't decide how to specialize. And there's there's literally no way to, to uh, learn everything that's out there in the market. Uh, there's just too many technologies. So that's okay. You know, don't panic. Uh, the the choice between SQL and NoSQL is very easy. SQL. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of good things to say about both. Uh, and I often use an analogy to um, maybe a carpenter 
or woodworker who and you go to a woodworker and you say, which is better, a hammer, a saw, or a drill? And the carpenter says, they're used for totally different things. Why are you asking me to choose <laughs> one over the other? Uh, and that's the same thing with technology. You, there's, there, you need to learn how to use the tools, but uh, in order to understand when to apply them to different situations. And the, the situations where a NoSQL database is going to shine and be the best solution is going to be a quite different situation from a, uh, a relational database or using SQL. Uh, so they're not really a replacement for one another, despite what MongoDB marketing might be trying to tell us. I mean, besides besides the the which use case is it better for SQL versus NoSQL debate? Um, you, one of the one of the skill sets that you mentioned to me previously that I totally agree with being worthwhile for people early in their career to get deeply familiar with is uh, source control. And I was I was wondering if you could mention a little bit about why why that came up in us uh, discussing valuable skills for people are in the early in their career to learn. Oh, absolutely. Uh, source control is one of the first skills that you should start practicing when you are getting into writing code. What source control is, is allowing you to save your work uh, at intervals uh, so that you don't lose any of it, but also so that if you uh, make some changes to your code and then you say, hmm, that didn't work out the way I thought it was, let me roll back <clears throat> to what I was working on yesterday or the day before that, or whenever you want, then the source control saves every version of the, the, uh, the code that you wrote, so you can revert in any way you want. Uh, and this is how every professional source uh, uh, coding operation works. It's especially useful if you're working with teams of people, but it can also be useful if you're working solo. Makes sense, makes sense. I mean, in in your career, did you start first using it in your first job, uh, in your internship, or at Borland, or when did was there a point at which source control became a more popular part of uh, employers' toolkits? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it dates back all you know all the way. Uh, there's there have been source control tools available uh, from the very earliest days that I've been working with computers. Uh, and it was necessary to to uh, to do that if you wanted to work in a team. Uh, another thing you can do with with source control is to create what's what they refer to as a branch. So you can be working on experimental changes to your code in sort of a isolated copy of the code that you're doing on your computer. And meanwhile, the rest of your colleagues, your team, they're working on the the more stable code that isn't isn't being uh, in danger of being upset by your experimental work. <laughs> uh, and they can continue to work on that. And then when you're done with your experiments and you say, okay, now it's stable. I can now share with you what I've been working on for the last five days. Then you can take your branch and re-merge it back into the mainline uh, copy of the code. But in the meantime, during those five days, you can be uh, committing your code and making, you know, saving uh, bits of it as you go so that you don't lose anything of, of those five days of work that you were working on. And that's really important to be able to uh, avoid lost work. It, it, it gives you more assurance that your, your code is backed up and, and safe. And you, if you need to revert back to what you did yesterday, you can do that or compare to what you did yesterday. And you can also show your, your teammates what you changed because 
those different versions of, of code, there are tools to say, now show me everything that's different between what you're working on and what I'm working on. And you can visually just see that uh, in one place. So it's a very important part of software development these days. And it's, it's been dating back for a long, long time. Perhaps a, a second order need or skill that people might learn at, at some point in their career, hopefully, is the is automated testing. And I was I was wondering if you were you probably witnessed the rise of the extreme programming movement. Uh, I, I mean, don't I couldn't say when that was or when that occurred, but I remember uh, or my familiarity with test driven development. Uh, was from a movement of software engineers pushing for uh, testing everything, or, or rather writing failing tests and then writing the software to pass those tests. So, when wh what was that movement like? Did it did it affect your your job at the time that it was going on? I was aware of it, the extreme programming and test driven development. I still see people advocate for it, but I haven't uh, really embraced it myself. Um, I, I have embraced doing testing and uh, lots of unit testing, but I find my pattern is more like, um, okay, I have a rough idea what I want the code to do. I'm going to write sort of a skeleton of the, the, the code, like with classes and functions of what I want to do. And then I'll switch roles. I'll, I'll then write some tests, some simple tests, just to make sure that things start working the way I want them to and to set up the, the test classes the, so that I can I can run them from time to time, but they don't the tests don't do much. Then I'll switch back to my code, and I'll start fleshing out more of the classes and methods, and implement more pieces, and switch back and forth to the testing. So as I go, I'll be bringing both of them up sort of in parallel, um, but focusing on one at a time, either code or testing. And over time, as I get through closer to the end of the that particular uh, task or project, I'll be writing more tests than code. I'll be writing lots and lots of tests to try to drive out every little nuance of, of the functionality, and then occasionally going back into my code to say, well, I didn't think of one thing. I just need to change this one thing or fix a bug. Then I'll get back to the tests. So it, it goes uh, back and forth, and it gradually moves toward less coding, more testing as you go. That's my uh, personal uh, uh, technique. I, I respect that some people are really big advocates of test-driven development, where you say, um, start with the tests, uh, write uh, tests that you know are going to fail, because obviously you haven't written any code yet, and um, say, this function needs to return the following. Well, it doesn't, because it does. I can't even call it. The function doesn't exist. Now you go back into your, your code, implement that function, and then you go back and forth, and you, you write your test first, and then fill it in to make write the code until the test passes. Uh, that's that takes a lot of discipline. Oh, agreed. I this this may seem like a, a benign question, but I, I'm curious what what primarily do you write your tests programming language wise in? Uh, whatever is the the accompanying technology for the language I'm using. I've, I've programmed in a lot of different languages. Uh, so I will use the appropriate testing framework for that language. If I'm programming in PHP, I'll use PHP unit. If I'm programming in uh, Java, I'll use uh, JUnit or uh, uh, one of the other frameworks for 
uh, testing in Java. Uh, so every every language, every environment that you use, there will be some preferred testing tool that sort of um, integrates well with it. And it's nice to do that because if your head is in one language at a time, if you're programming in Python or if you're programming in Java or whatever, you're you're thinking in that syntax and and with those functions you know how to do string manipulation you know how to do other types of operations within that language and it's just convenient to be able to keep your head in that one place and use the uh, write your tests in the same language that you are writing your code in i really i realize this might be a, a more complex topic than most beginners might deal with in writing tests but when it comes to mocking uh, code uh, for unit testing purposes. Is there a particular language that you found it easier for or that you prefer when it comes to writing more uh, complicated types of tests that require uh, mocking interactions with external tools for like, for example, a database? Uh, the experience I had with doing a database testing, I actually didn't mock anything. I, I tested um, real uh, databases. Uh, the experience that comes to mind is I was working on a product called the Zend framework for PHP uh, around 2007. And I wanted to write unit tests to make sure that all the, the database uh, the database library functions would work correctly. And I could do some stuff in memory with just unit tests. And I could do some stuff against a uh, in-memory in database because uh, something like uh, SQLite was a good embedded database that was fast. It would run in memory, and you could do that. But if you really needed to test how these, these database functions would work against a real server, there's kind of no way you can mock that because you're you're testing uh, how you're going to uh, how it's going to react from the server's perspective because the server has its own idea about how it's going to parse SQL and how it's going to perform and errors it's going to send back. And if you try to mock that much detail, you're essentially reinventing the database system that you're trying to, to use. So why not just mm -hmm. test on a live server? So I designed the, the uh, unit testing framework for a Zend framework so that it would optionally connect to a live database. You could run the test suite under its default uh, mode uh, to do everything in memory. But then uh, you could also enable uh, certain live databases. So I was testing MySQL, Postgres, Oracle, Microsoft SQL Server, IBM DB2, and finally SQLite. And I had... Man, that is the game. <laughs> it covers pretty much 90, 95% of the popular databases out there. Uh, but that was the goal of that particular project, is to write one... PHP component library that could talk to any backend database and, and try to treat them as, as close as they could, which is once you've done a project like that, you realize how much difference there is between all those different brands of database. Although they're meant to all implement SQL the same, they, they in practice don't. Mm -hmm. I think one, one interesting factoid for audience members that may not have learned SQL yet is... I was surprised to find this out, but SQLite is in uh, virtually every smartphone, whether iPhone or Android. Um, yeah. I think it ships with both. Yeah. SQLite is an amazing product uh, for a couple of different reasons. One is that it's it's so pervasive. It's, it's in all these mobile devices. It's in Internet of Things devices. 
It's it's you know probably in your your Wi-Fi router. It's uh, you know it's everywhere. The other interesting thing that I I find you're, this is going back to sort of complementary skills that you get to learn that aren't just simply coding. I have an interest in software licenses. You know the the issues of copyrights and uh, GPL and open source and all those things. And the, what makes uh, SQLite interesting from that perspective is it is free. It is public domain, which is a, quite a different thing from simply open source. It means SQLite has no copyright uh, associated with it. You don't even have to license it from anybody, even for free. Uh, so it's a, it's maybe a subtle distinction for people who don't follow licensing discussions, but it's it's a remarkable example of truly free software. That is, tr I mean, it's. I think I've heard that it's also used in airplanes. Oh, <laughs> I may I may be mistaken about that, but I wouldn't doubt it. The uh, the, the uh, uh, number of places that it's used is probably really hard to track because it's free. Uh, anybody can download mm -hmm. it and use it, and they don't have to sign up. They don't have to get a license. They, you know, nothing like that. So it's very difficult to know exactly how far it has spread. So I, most all of our IS members, when you walk around with it in your pocket, with your phone in your pocket, you're walking around with a SQL database. Of course. <laughs> yes, SQL is everywhere. One, one of the topics of your background that we've talked about previously that I think would be an awesome uh, perspective builder for a lot of people is you, you mentioned your career uh as it, as you experienced it through the early 2000s dot-com bubble bursting. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could share with our audience what what that experience was like. Oh, <laughs> being in the dot-com bubble? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that era was really kind of brief. It was like 1999 through 2002. And, um, and it was the, the era when there was a few companies, very famous companies like Red Hat Linux and uh, a few others that um, uh, started up and did an IPO and got these amazing uh, valuations through their IPO. And suddenly everyone, everybody wanted to do the same thing. And so there are a lot of... Uh, kind of dumb ideas that came about and somehow got funding uh, and then you know, lasted for a very brief amount of time and went away. Why did they go away? Because they didn't have a sustainable business plan. Being in the software field is not just about technology. It's about making a uh, a product and a business that you can actually sustain and will make money uh, beyond your initial valuation if you want to have any, any uh, uh, stick to itiveness and uh, a lot of those early dot coms were not sustainable they what what was what were your what were the jobs that you held through that that short era um principally i worked for one company which did uh which created fancy websites for those other dot coms so uh some company would get you know, a you know a few million dollars and they would say let's spend all of this and and make a, a really interesting site. So then they would hire us to actually put their site together. And we would uh, put a, a site together for an astonishingly large amount of money. And, you know, some of this, because we had a lot of uh, Java engineers who were doing this and put it all together, and we might be doing bids for half a million dollars to a million dollars just to create the website. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> and and that was you know and of course those other dot coms were doing other things with the rest of their money um but uh you can see how that when they're spending that amount of money it's probably not uh, a really good business investment the i remember reading a newspaper article about, at that time about a fellow who was uh, in the newspaper because he was selling his business it was just some sort of service business like you know um roofing uh supplies or something and he had sold he was getting to be retirement age and he was selling his business and he sold it for three million dollars or something but it was all his he had not ever taken any investor money and the the what he sold it for didn't go 99 percent to his investors it was all in for him for his retirement years and the the mm -hmm. journalist said how did you do this and he said I grew the business very gradually over many, many years. I did not buy thousand uh, dollar chairs. I did not, uh, you know, spend money like water. I grew it very gradually in a sustainable way. I added more employees very gradually as as the business could support them, and eventually uh, it got to this point where I'm ready to retire. The thing about the dot com era is everybody wanted to do this you know, get to the, the multi-million dollar business overnight without having to invest those years of growth and uh, organic, uh, sustainable um, business development to, to try to create it. And that's, it's very volatile. Some companies succeeded, most did not. Did the one you worked for succeed? Uh, ultimately, it did not. Uh, because we were dependent on getting hired by other companies, who were all in this sort of dot-com mode, um, when they went away, when, when the dot-com crash happened, which is essentially when the investors realized, hey, this isn't panning out, let's stop investing into these, uh, these silly ideas, then all of the people who were the ones who would hire us, they all disappeared. And very quickly, we disappeared too. Mm. What was that last day like? The last day was interesting. We uh, the employees at that business were expecting um, the company to run out of money, our, our employer, and we knew that we didn't have many uh, clients giving us revenue, and we knew that we were essentially burning through our, our residual money. Uh, and uh, so, in that environment, when we got a email saying everybody come to the conference room, it's, it's a big meeting. I realized, and everybody around me realized that was it. You know, this, is, this is the last day, and you know, no hard feelings. It was a great run, but this is the end. So I was at my my workstation writing some code, and I literally just stood up from my workstation. I didn't even save the code that I was working on because <laughs> I realized I wasn't going to come back to that computer again, and whatever I was working on would never see the light of day. And I grabbed my backpack and I went to the meeting, and we got laid off. Uh, so. Um, how how do you back bounce back from that? I I know the answer to this question, but I want to I want our audience to hear the good ending. What I what I did uh, after that is uh, I contacted one of the um, businesses that I had done um, uh, some work for through that employer through that professional services uh, employer, and they still had a need for somebody to do work for them, um, and I no longer had any reason to uh, restrict myself. There was no um, non-compete clause uh, with my former employer because they were shut down. So I said, hey, would you like me to work for you? I'll charge you half as much as you were paying the professional services company, and I still get more money in my pocket as a result. 
by cutting out the middleman of, of this uh, managing company. And they were very happy about that. And that lasted for about two and a half years. So on, on your behalf, I would, I would like to plug a couple of things, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm all, all in favor of that. One, one of them, well, I, we should mention that uh, Square is most definitely hiring. Uh, so if you'd like to work with Bill, <laughs> you guys should check out Square's jobs, uh, particularly anything database related. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to plug on your behalf is that you're an author. Uh, so I thought it'd be nice to plug your book, Sequel Anti-Patterns, Avoiding the Pitfalls of Database Programming. Yeah, I wrote that a few years ago. Um, as we mentioned, I, I answer a lot of questions online. And I've been doing that for so many years that I started to seeing some of the the, uh, the struggles and the, the problems that uh, software developers have come up over and over again. The same questions come up. So I wanted to write a book and kind of collect the most common ones and and then write a really uh, well-written and fully featured description of what the solution is for some of those things. And the way I uh, presented that is to show here's the the blunders that I see people making over and over again, uh, in data, particularly in SQL and database programming, and uh, the, the most common types of blunders, and how you should fix it, how you should do things in a different way and how you should understand databases to understand enough to not to paint yourself into a corner. Well, one thing we'll do for certain is include uh, links to uh, Square Jobs and also the the book in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, well, Bill, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. I'm really pleased. Good luck with your podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer Podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Bill and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. Cause Mr. Baseman, I wanna be a baseman too, but